0: On the 9th of May, my family and I said goodbye to a great man. I posted a photograph on social media. The photo was of myself and my granddad with an air hostess. We were on our way to Lourdes. My granny took the photo, and the caption of the photo reads I love this picture. Granny Linda and granddad Ray took me to Lourdes around 1987 on a good luck pilgrimage. They were not looking for a miracle. My granddad wasn't deeply religious, he had some sort of faith. When he prayed for things, he would pray to his mother or St. Patrick. I'm not too sure about the latter, but I know my great Granny Clark was thought of in such high regard that she is still spoken of in our family today. They took me to the grotto in Lourdes, as we were all waiting for divine intervention, a stone fell from above and hit my grandma on the shoulder. He picked up the stone and put it in his pocket for good luck. He kept it. It's still in my Granny's house, under lock and key to this day. I'm physically a bit different. I never felt different. The support system of family and friends around me never batted an eyelid and never made me feel different. My Granddad always told me I was perfect the way I was. When I was born my mother was told I'd only last for around a week so anytime I reached milestones or had achievements in my life my Granddad would always point at a stone from Lourdes and would say I told your granny that that stone would bring us good luck. He was a great man and as I said I loved this picture. This episode of What's a Story podcast is dedicated to a man who taught me how to have compassion and empathy for others. My granddad, the legendary Ray Clark. Oh.
1: Marrow, Merrigan. Merrigan. 40 You doing well, my friend?
0: Yeah, all good. All good. Stay How are you?
1: I am indeed. I am indeed. And uh, broadcasting from home as well today for this wonderful audio presentation called What's the Story Podcast?
0: Absolutely. Episode 206. Danny, did you paint your room? Uh,
1: the lovely Oksana painted the room, Graham. And yeah. uh, well, I hope she you played- she claims Tempest Blue is the colour now. Um, I, I actually meant to send Gary a photo of it and ask for his approval. He is
0: going to flip that there was no consultation over no. the decorating of the room. I,
1: know, I, I don't I,
0: know if that's Temple Blue. Uh,
1: tempest Blue.
0: I don't know if that's Tempest Blue.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I just looked blue to be honest with you.
0: I can't wait to get onto the WhatsApp group after this and say, Gary, Danny redire- redecorated the bedroom without your consultation,
1: and uh, the the downstairs toilet has been done as well. Thank you. <laughs> without his fucking guidance. And and the this box. is the ultimate insult to our in-house designer. Look, me and Gary had a falling out over that designing app, and I got too big for me boots. And <laughs> I'm not af- I'm I'm not afraid to say I'm sorry and to, mm. you know, to say to Gary, publicly as well as privately, that I had a brief stint in the design world, I got the attention I craved, I got my five-star apartment on the app, but I'm done with it now. And I, I bow to superior knowledge, um, you know, and when he gains that superior knowledge, I'll acknowledge it. Deadly. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so,
0: what have yeah. we got
1: lined up this week, Dan? Uh, this podcast in particular, is uh, one that we've been trying to get across the line for a good, good long while. And just for several, many reasons over the years, uh, we fell short. Um, But thankfully, um, we managed to to make it happen this time. Um, And I'm delighted to say Senator Lynn Ruan agreed to give us a bit of time of a Wednesday evening to chat to two strangers like myself and yourself. And it was a pleasure.
0: And here she is, Senator Lynn Rowan.
1: Joining us now
0: after two or three years in the making uh, is the brilliant independent senator, Senator Lynn Rowan. Thanks for joining us, Lynn. How are you? I'm
2: good. Very good. Thank you.
0: We've waited so long for this moment.
2: <laughs> I know. I'm not even sure why it never happened. I think just time, busyness or, yeah. 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 It was
1: time Don't- and... There was a vicious rumor you were avoiding Graham Erdogan. Yeah,
2: that was it. <laughs> he, his con-
1: his contract negotiation skills are they go before them. So. Uh.
0: Then how but, uh, are you finding yeah. the lockdown and, and work and and everything? Is it all going?
2: Uh, like obviously yeah. we're,
0: we're being lifted. Restrictions have been lifted somewhat, but how's it going?
2: Um, I think like I mean, it's I kind of feel a little bit guilty in a sense that when I say. I'm in China or it's Gomell because obviously in saying that you can't it's hard to just see your own experience in isolation compared to I suppose what what is happening in 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 other people's lives and stuff so there's a guilt I suppose but in reality and to be truthful being at home has been really really good I suppose I've been I've been working and studying since I'm a teenager like so I've never really had even though I'm still working from home I, I haven't spent this long in my house for that long period of time um, or even sitting out my back garden working in the sun like I, I was probably a kid the last time I spent that amount of time out the back garden you know and I suppose it was just nice to to feel at home but also being able to recognize that the privilege associated with feeling comfortable in your own home and feeling safe there and, and being able to work and knowing that you know you're not facing any sort of Hardship in terms of your own personal experience—it's—it's—it's—it it was a pretty kind of nice place to be in, but also something good for me to recognise that that's that's also where my life is at now. That there is a level of safety and security in just being and just being at home. And I suppose that was new to me, so it was nice to kind of meet that 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 part of my life in a sense, yeah.
0: And it's the most dramatic thing that happened, yeah, during the whole process. Yeah, running with little. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and that wasn't even dramatic at all. Uh, that oh, part God. was actually fine. It was how people react to that that actually is the dramatic piece. <laughs> oh really? With
0: or- there bad remarks?
2: Yeah, yeah, very bad. Um, so like that dialogue I can handle in that conversation and um, that's fine. Um, but it's, it's, it's when everybody else comes in, you know, there's a, a huge, obviously, you know, classism is a huge part of how people kind of come at me so my face could be up on a screen for any reason but the dialogue that happens underneath that is very much um predictable you know and so that bit, that bit feels dramatic uh the 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 conversation about um what you wear and what you don't wear and clothes like like, that's i think that's that's an okay conversation to be having and dialogue to be having you know it's just it's
1: everything else that comes in. And, Lynn, you like, I, I remember, I think it was late last year, on, on the journal, you, you wrote a piece about body positivity. Uh, well, like, I just, I don't know, when I seen that at first, I seen some of the comments underneath that, whatever, but the first thing I thought of when I seen that thing with Little was, Jesus, I remember she was just writing about body positivity recently. Like, did, did that yeah. sort of come into your head at all? Like, were you kind of thinking, oh, Jesus, when it was happening, or like...
2: No, like it wasn't that. It's more just this is ridiculous. Like, why, why would anybody care what you have on you when you walk into a shop? Like, unless you have, unless you have your genitals <laughs> walking around the shop. I think people. Yeah, M- Merrow like... has
1: experience with that. Yeah,
2: <laughs> he's, bar- he's
1: barred from three centres.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, but um, like I think in, in terms of body positivity stuff, it's not. It's more just um it's more just why do people care so much or have so much commentary on other people or are so invested in how other people look or what other people wear or how other people present themselves. I think that's that's what, what bothers me more than most, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, 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 ha- that happens a lot, though, doesn't it? Like, uh,
0: it's a cons- especially kind of with social media, like, it's always... Like I'm, I'm kind of invested at the moment with J.K. Rowling, uh, with her kind of kind of contribution to the transgender discussion, and it's kind of like I was, I was, I was reflecting on her tweet, and I was kind of going, she woke up Monday morning, saying to herself, I'm going to tweet this, and she knew the reaction she was going to get was going to hurt a, a, a section of her society that's in a minority mm-hmm. that needs an arm around them, and. She is a gazillionaire. She has no worries. She's she's still writing books and stuff. And it's just like, why? I just don't. I just don't get it. Like, I don't get why people. I'm not trying to solve the world or the crisis here. But I'm just like, I just don't get it. It's just fucking crazy to me.
2: Yeah, I think. Um, I think the fact that we feel like we can have such a run commentary on other people is is quite. It's quite sad I think I suppose especially for someone with such a high profile say like JK Rowland like it's it's I think I think the attacks on her are not are not okay in terms of like you know I believe she's been getting terrible abuse and death threats and stuff and I don't think that's okay either but I also you know I also don't see why as well she's so invested in you know, tweeting something that is going to have such a negative impact on lives that are nothing got to do with her, first of all, but also doesn't impact her in any shape or form. Like, she's of such privilege. And if these are discussions that she thinks about or wants to have, I think you do have to take responsibility if you have a massive following like that in terms of what what you do with it, especially if a minority group are going to be impacted. And a minority group that have, extremely high death rates mental health issues you know self-harm because of the rejection that they feel in society so the people that experience huge mental health issues like the lgbtqi community and all minority communities usually it's not because they have issue with their identity but it's because of how other people reject who they are have a running commentary who they are and they spend their lives having to justify their existence so just this real resistance from other people to resist other people's existence and it's like why <laughs> generally you know what? like why why do you want to deny other people's realities and experiences to them in such a way that causes harm you know Is- and I think if your judgments are going to have that type of impact on a community well then you have to be able to pause for a moment before you put them out into the world or before you tweet them and I'm not saying you can't think that thing right but there's a there's a responsibility on you to sometimes privately think that thing and, you know, sort out your own thoughts in your own head and not use them in a way that then act as a weapon against the whole community where they have to keep justifying their own lives and realities and experiences. Like, so, yeah, I think it's, I think there's an, you definitely have to take some responsibility, like, especially if you, like, you know, you have such a big, big reach.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is it, um i don't know we we're kind of saying it there that sounds similar to kind of some of the things that people have been saying around kind of when people react to black lives matter with all lives matter and it's kind of it's that whole thing of well yeah, yeah all lives do obviously matter but you know there's a reason black lives matter exists as a campaign like you know yeah
2: exactly and i think um i think there's also a space where you know, because sometimes in me when I see reactions like that, like say even all lives matter, my reaction is, I I have to slow down for a minute because I want to just say like, sh- shut up, Bart. You're not real. You know, there's, there's an automatic yeah. thing that it stores in you. But I think we we have to learn how to have dialogue. So we have to learn that there's many people whose instinctual reaction will be, but all lives matter. You know, and maybe that's because they've never had a conversation about race before. Maybe that's because they have very little understanding of race, the struggles within race. Maybe they've never, you know, so it's like, how do we also slow down and how we uh, challenge those conversations and challenge those opinions of people in a way that's helpful so that it becomes a dialogue, but not necessarily, you know, a dialogue in the public sense because there's also there's a, I find it very sad in one way as well that people have to look at a dialogue happening about them. Do you know what I mean? So that there has to be it, there has to be a community that that keeps saying air lives matter. Can you not all just accept and see that air lives matter and it's like, how do you get to that point? And how do we have dialogue that brings as many people along as possible without completely shutting people down when they have genuine um, concerns or, you know, queries about particular things that they probably never explored before. So it's like, that's why I think school and how very early on is how we introduce, how, how we do that. You know, it's like, it, it, there was a petition going around this week about, you know, how white the, the leaving Cert curriculum is, you know, you know, the lack of diversity, the lack of um, people of color, the lack of traveler, um, in their history books you know so it's like to save us having to have those discussions as adults or to save having to get to a point where adults have never had a conversation about race before it should be reflected at all levels of our development from from the moment we're born you know right down to the dolls that we buy our children, you know what I mean? Like, are we buying dolls that are of colour? Are we buying Barbies that are different shapes and sizes, you know? So it's like, how do we introduce those conversations at the earliest possible point so that we don't get to adulthood and we just end up having a massive struggle and fight of opinions rather than read dialogue about how we solve the problems of oppression or the problems of inequality, you know, because we'll, so much of our time will be taken up trying to convince people that other people's lives matters while the solutions are being left on the side because we're trying to convince people why we need the solutions. And it's like, how do we get to that point early? And I think we, we've a lot of work to do on that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's yeah. like one one of the things areas are saying, like when it's in schools and stuff like that, we need to be kind of getting in early. like. Yeah. <clears throat> I remember in my school, kind of, like, you know, at the time didn't think that of it, but, like, now looking back on it, I was quite fortunate in the sense of, like, there were, there were travellers in, uh, our members of the travelling community who were in my class in secondary school. We had, uh, like, foreign exchange students who were in our class, people from different backgrounds and all that kind of thing. And when we are a kid, we didn't really think that of it, but, like, obviously, you know, being a little bit older, hopefully a little bit wiser, kind of looking back on it, you kind of appreciate that a little bit more because without thinking about it, I was getting that exposure to it's different for you know Mm -hmm. tommy kind of is for me it's different for Mm -hmm. and it is for me that kind of thing um, but i
2: think the thing is like even though um we might be starting to see more that diversity within the classroom people that are from the more minority backgrounds don't see themselves reflected say in the teaching profession themselves so they don't see themselves reflected in the structures of the school so even though as children we might allow the um, you have to break down them barriers between our own social groups but when they sit down to read the text there's no mention of the travellers that have done, you know, that are part of our music, part of our history, they're our indigenous, you know, but yet there's no mention of those when we're doing history, when we're doing music, when we're doing metal work, when we're doing all the things that travellers were so um, amazing at until we remove their ability to, by stopping their ability to travel, you know, and it's like, so even though um, children will break them them barriers between each other. Minority groups still need to see them ref- themselves reflected in the structures as well. Otherwise, you know they won't want to go on and become teachers or doctors or because they don't ever see themselves in those professions. You know.
0: Yeah. How do we get How do we get people um to understand, say, the struggles of minorities? Um, and I ask that because as a wheelchair user. Um, when I am when I'm telling stories of discrimination of my experience uh, over over the years, like I had one uh, maybe 15 months ago where an establishment told me to, that I had to leave because they weren't insured for me like th- that. And it makes no sense because you don't get insurance out saying, oh, do, you, do you insure wheelchair users for this premises? You know, and when when I tell people of that story, and I'm sure other minorities go through the same uh, anecdote stories with their friends and family and and uh, people that they meet, and the response is always like, "No way, geez, I, I didn't know that." You know, I didn't know that, but like I always get the impression. Then after telling the story, having getting the reaction of, oh, "Geez, I didn't know that," then it's kind of just forgotten about. Do you know what I mean? It's like, how do we how do we teach that for all minorities because there is, like, I've had, I, I have huge empathy and compassion for what's currently going on at the, in, in, in the world at the moment because I've experienced loads. Every day, if I go out to, to a shop, uh, I have to I have to kind of say to myself, right, there's someone parked in a wheelchair spot there that I can't get out of my car now. Do I, one day I'll say, no, I, I'm not in the humour for an argument. And then the next day, right, I'm fucking, I'm raring to go. Like, how do we get, people that don't face these issues to understand and to, in return, show us empathy and compassion.
2: Because yeah. the
0: traveling community has no, the, the, the majority, and I could be generalizing, but they don't, the, gen, the general population does not have compassion or empathy for the traveling community because of social, uh, so, uh, social like the, the, the things that get happen. And, and Peter Casey didn't help that either.
2: Yeah, I think, I think because I think it can probably feel overwhelming to think, how do we teach people all the things that might be an issue for all these groups in society? Because it just feels like it's a long piece of string in terms of, you know, how do we make sure we can get all the information into people's heads? And, and that can feel quite big. So I think another way, and it's not that I'm not married to this idea, but I don't think... There's something in instead of necessarily trying to hit all the points on getting people to understand the issues for minority groups or people uh, with a disability or whatever the, the issue may be, is how do we get people to be more self-reflective of their behaviours and how they exist in the world? You know, so as an individual, um, is there anything about what I'm doing now that may impede the life of someone else? So it's like, how do we take responsibilities to be able to recognise our own actions and thoughts? And how do we just be a little more present to the world around us so that we know that we are privileged, we're able-bodied, we're white, we're like, whatever it is, whatever our privileges are. Stunningly um, good looking it's massive (laughs) you know so it's like how do we make people a bit more self-reflective of their own existence and how make sure that you're not living a life that impedes on on someone else's you know and I think I think it's more manageable to get people to take more responsibility for themselves and how they treat people and how they operate their day rather than figuring out how can we manage to get all the issues heard that that minority groups um, go through on a daily basis. Um, Now, obviously, we do need to raise awareness on particular things that just won't go on people's radar. So it's not that I don't think information and awareness doesn't need to be raised, and we don't need to be bringing people along on on what are the issues. But I also think we need to have a little bit more going on in schools and write up about even, you know, we, we need to be teaching we need to be teaching philosophy and um, we need to be teach we need to be creating people that can reason and use logic and, and not be acting purely out of emotional uh, reaction to other people's lives. And I think if we can slow down people's thought process and how they exist in the world, they might be a little bit more mindful of other people, you know, and um, I know that won't necessarily work f- for everyone, but I do know for myself the more I've become aware, like even in terms of disability, like I would consider myself to be on the right side of the things that I, I care about. But there are things that I've had to fix in myself that, um, you know, even even parking up on a path, you know, like I have started kind of now going, no, I, I like, you know, a, a wheelchair could be trying to get past there. And. I wouldn't have even thought for two seconds about that only a couple of years ago. I would have been looking at what is the most convenient and quick and easiest way for me to get what I want in this moment to park as close as I can to that shop. So why I'm saying is I think we need to be more self-reflective is we need to stop making our lives so easy for ourselves that we hinder other people by just disregarding um, what other people may need. Um, I'm not sure exactly how we do that, but I, I do think that that's a big, big part of it.
1: Do, do, absolutely it other, is yeah one of the other things <laughs> then uh, just in terms of kind of you know people who are probably discriminated against and, and part of the world that you've kind of worked in as well Lane, Um, you know pe- people who have suffered with addiction um, are, are constantly kind of demonised and that kind of thing do you think there's a lack of understanding around what addiction is and how it affects people
2: yeah I think um, it, it, addiction disproportionately affects Um, marginalized and oppressed and um, communities that have experienced high amounts of deprivation. So addiction obviously exists across all boundaries, but the proportion of the addiction in terms of how it manifests is very different from community to community. So even though middle class and upper class people will experience like alcoholism and different things, you have to look at the type of drug use and the extent of the drug use. Um so the heroin epidemic obviously only hit communities with a high amount of deprivation and poverty. And um, so I kind of really resist, you know, when, when some politicians say, oh well, you know, addiction affects us all and I'm like, well no, you need to actually drill down into what that looks like, you know, because it does look different. And I think the problem is um for communities that have a high amount of disadvantage, they don't have the same safety nets in terms of when they do experience addiction, they don't have the same cultural and social capital to be able to rebuild their lives after addiction, and they don't have the ability to settle back into an environment where there's where it's absent of addiction. So if you're from a more middle class or affluent um, family, the likelihood of there being intergenerational addiction or you know uh, drug use or whatever within the house is is much smaller than within um, a community like mine so when somebody from a community like mine and um, decides that they want to uh, maybe they're considering recovery or civ- whatever they go away maybe they go away for three months to a treatment center maybe they do some aftercare and it's the the, the, the institution versus agency kind of thing so an individual per- an individual person's agency, might be there to try and overcome addiction. They want to stop. They want to get past it. They want to move on. But the overpower overpowering instrument, tool that is society and institution is too powerful for them to fully realize um, it, 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 a life free of addiction because everything they've just done as an individual, as soon as they enter back into their community, every single thing. There's addiction on every street. You probably don't go three or four houses without somebody that is experiencing some level of addiction or trauma or violence or mental health. So you never return to a place that's safe enough for you to be able to really flourish in in, in your recovery unless you really find communities that you can embed your recovery in so that you have some sort of uh, support network. And it's really difficult but I think people discriminate so much against people that are in addiction because it's visible to them. Where some families can hide addiction within um, more supported um, communities that are, you know, you know, Dublin Six or wherever it may be. But it's much more private the addiction in our communities. It's visible. Um, it's it's physically visible because people are self medicating. The, the trauma that they're feeling. They're carrying that around. Um, and I think it's discriminated against because I think people have a misunderstanding that people choose to be addicts. Nobody wakes up and goes, do you know what? I always wanted to be. I always wanted to be a heroin addict, you know? and That's it. Like every day now I'm going to get up and I'm going to live that dream and I'm never going to get help and I'm never going to seek recovery. And do you know what? Imagine, being, imagine living a life of no heroin. That's ridiculous. Nobody chooses that. But yes, society seems to think that that's what we chose. And they failed to recognize all the different external things that has gone into that person's life that meant that heroin addiction was the only option to their pain, the only option to the lack of opportunity that they experienced, their only option to cope, their only option to deal with um, adverse childhood experiences, the only option they had to maybe numb the overwhelming sense of hopelessness or feeling useless, or feeling trapped, you know, feeling like this is it, this is me life, is this all I have, you know? So people don't want to see that. People just want to see you're an individual, you have free will, and you choose every day to take drugs, and that's on you, you know? And I think that it's just, it's it's, it's a real lack of insight, a real lack of understanding. And um, people, I think, to acknowledge addiction would have to acknowledge that society has created communities that rely on uh, substance use to manage the pain of that inequality. So I think sometimes their refusal to acknowledge why people might be in in addiction, in homelessness, in all them things that we look at, is actually because of societal failure. So when you remove addiction um, from the individual, and you place it in the context of the family and then the family of the community and then that community of a society that we part, that we are supposed to govern and care for, well then you at some level along that thread have to take responsibility for being part of contributing to that society and we don't want to do that. So it's better to blame the individual because then you never, ever, ever have to look at yourself and how you judge the world or how you contribute to the world, especially politicians or people that are in decision-making roles you know we need to take responsibility for why people are in the situations that they're in and that's not to advocate in any certain way that at some level people also don't have personal responsibility but your ability to be able to take personal responsibility is very very difficult when you're living a life that where there's no safety you know so when we look at Soldiers years ago that ended up on heroin, we have more of an understanding and sympathy and em- empathy as a society. Oh, god, but they experienced massive trauma, they were in the war, you know, blah blah blah. But yet, we don't want to apply that same understanding to communities that are in their own war of survival on a daily basis and you know, don't really know on what given day which one of their friends is going to die or be stabbed or dealing with multiple griefs from a very young age. That in itself. Is living in a consistent um, threat of violence. So it's violent. We're living violent lives in a sense. And every day we're in this prolonged threat of violence, this sense of anxiety of what is going to happen next, who's going to die, how am I going to manage, how am I going to get my kids to adulthood without dying, how am I going to get my son. To stop, you know, smoking heroin, he looks like he's, you know, not going to last until he's 40. All this is a constant threat of violence, and 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 you know, we're living in that on a daily basis, and we need to be able to look at that and how that contributes to the outcome of being able to see addicts walking on the streets, you know, or pe- the amount of people in homelessness. You know, I always remember for, for a phrase from a piece of research I done with, with Fiona O'Reilly. Well, for Fiona O'Reilly, who runs the Safety Net Services, which is the mobile health unit and stuff, um, that goes around town providing healthcare to 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 homeless people and migrants and Roma, and um, it she said like um the the streets are our new asylum. So all them years ago, we used to put people in asylums, and then we said that oh we're going to integrate people back into the community, but that never actually that never happened because we didn't actually support people. What we did is we made it look like we had a community approach, but never resourced the communities to be able to um, look and care and nurture our children in a way that we didn't end up with people completely losing their minds because of poverty and trauma. And I just remember using that phrase that the streets were our new asylums. And I just thought that just captured how broken uh, uh, our system is, that the streets are our new asylums. You know, I thought it was quite it's a powerful, powerful isn't it? phrase. Jeez, the streets, it is
0: so powerful, yeah.
2: Yeah and and are are we getting are we getting
0: better um, with people we're helping people with addictions then
2: yeah like I think I think in a sense we are I think there's a greater understanding I think there's a constant conflict between you know um, providing a service and care and understanding to people but never fixing um, why it exists so I think we're getting better at providing a real most like a multidisciplinary way of working with people, but if we don't actually fix the reason as why people enter addiction in the first place, well, then all we'll ever be doing is just helping people at different points through their recovery or through their lives. But will we ever reduce the amount of people that are living in the conditions that they're living in? And that that has to that's what needs to that's that's what's not matching up, you know. So, um, you know being able to have communities that can flourish, being able to have an education system whereby people of all abilities and um, personalities and and whatever they have can be catered for and get through. You know, if we don't fix the system, we'll always be great at providing treatment for addiction, but it's about, we're not good at the prevention piece. So how can we create a society that prevents that, that, that we're never going to get rid of addiction completely mm. you know but in terms of that chronic, chronic use of drugs I think we need to look at why that exists and, and trauma is a big part of that and trauma is making its way into a lot of um a lot of uh, how services now need to look at um, why people are in addiction in the first place or, you know, impulse control, the different behaviours associated with someone that might end up on drugs. There's loads of stuff that's all related to adverse childhood experiences and children experiencing things that they never should have experienced and um, nobody should experience in their lifetime. So I think we're starting to really take that much more holistic view um, of the person and their whole life rather than just the fact that they use a specific drug so that we can begin to cater for whole families and generations. And I think we are getting better at that, but I don't think we resource it enough and I don't think we've solved the problem yet of why so many people are in that position.
1: Do you think the the leadership of, like the, the, the sort of political leadership of the country rather, wants to solve that? Do you think it's on their agenda to solve it or...?
2: Yeah, like I think... I think ultimately, most people, and maybe it's naive of me to think, but I I do think most people are inherently good. And I think most people want to do the right thing. But I think sometimes good intentions is not enough. So sometimes we give people too much leeway for just having good intentions. But your good intentions can still also be harmful if you're making them from a privileged position with a privileged lens. So you can be a good person and you can be a political party or you can be a political leader that wants to do good. But if you can't step out away way to actually take on the legitimate advice and views of the people who live those experiences, well, then you're going to fail and your good intentions are just as harmful as if you didn't have them at all. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, you, yeah. Have, you have to be able to go, we're, we're a political party, we're in power, yes, but we know the value of um, including everybody in the decision-making. And that doesn't mean sending a survey out to people <laughs> and say, what do you think? It's about actually making sure that everybody is part of the decision-making and the implementation And I think people need to acknowledge that no party, no person has all the answers. So if you think you can run a country or an organization or whatever based on your own views and your own views only, well, then you will always fail so many sectors of society. So unless you can actually build your your party, your society, your organization, your NGO, your school, whatever it is, unless you can build that on the backs of everybody. And not just consulting them and going, well, we consulted this group, you know, what I mean, but actually making sure that representation is diverse as possible and decision making is as diverse as possible. And that sometimes you have to accept that your view is not valid or not, um, not solving the problem. And I think we, unfortunately, we have um, a huge amount of people within politics that are afraid to admit when they get it wrong. So they commit to the idea over and over and over and over again and they've taught themselves the narrative that, no, no, this is working, and then they present it in a different statistical way or they figure out a narrative instead of just going, do you know what? Maybe, maybe, just maybe this this is not working and maybe we need to take a different tact here and maybe we need to include different people. And I would love for political departments not to be made up all of like civil servants that are there in the same job for all these years and politicians who actually don't have the expertise for the department they might be yeah. quite capable but if you're in a housing department it would be much better to have housing experts and housing bodies to be actually the ones that are driving the policy in particular departments generally you know I and so yeah, i think yeah. i think ministers having different just be, being given briefs to solve like the health crisis, the homeless crisis, mental health, when they actually don't have an adequate understanding or they've never even worked in it before or they've never implemented a policy in before and to somehow think that that person is going to know what to do to solve those crises, I think it's extremely naive and I think we should be actually appointing um, experts and appointing independent bodies to be actually operating in some of the departments alongside the minister's.
0: Time, hundred percent, yeah, absolutely. Lynn, I seen um, recently that yourself and a couple of colleagues um, wrote a letter to, uh, as well as Fiona, Fiona, Fá- Gael, and the Green Party about. Um, it was was it a concern about p- the possible inclusion of people that have used racist rhetoric in the past?
2: Yeah, um, so we 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 started drafting that letter actually before kind of Black Lives Matter has has, has really kind of taken hold over the last few weeks. Um, mainly out of concern that the moment you legitimise by um, the moment you legitimise um, racist rhetoric, whether it's against uh, people of colour or our own uh, uh, travelling communities or um, whatever it may be, um, wherever the racism is targeted, for me is if, if you don't challenge that, if you don't, um, if, if there's no consequences for you um, using racist rhetoric and um, and in a way that's oppressive to so many communities and actually you're seen as a legitimate person to form a government I think that's a real issue because I love do you know what I love the phrase that's after being used in the last few weeks I think it makes so much sense anti to be anti-racist so it's not good enough for governments and particular leaders just to go but I'm not racist But you know what? I'll still talk to this person. Allow them be part of the decision-making process. But they're racist. So actually, you need governments also need to be anti-racist, you know. And governments also need to say we 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 don't only not condone racism, but we refuse to allow racism to seep into our structures and into how we do business and how we develop policies. So for us, it was to make sure that our our position was held loud and clear that. If you form a government with people who are um, who are using racist rhetoric and continue to do it and continue to not actually acknowledge, um, you know, uh, you know, and basically build their careers off it, and um, if you do that, well, then you are just as you, you are facilitating that. So Absolutely. you are by extension. Um, guilty for fraud or legitimizing racism within the country. Um, so that they would just be my views. Obviously, the letter was written in a way that was that, that allowed us to take in the views of all the politicians that signed it. We didn't get around to sending it to every politician because you know we're not all on site at the minute, so we, yeah. we, we have a day or so to contact as many as we could. Um, but that would be my personal view, that by extension of you, facilitating racist um commentary within your government well then you know you have to take responsibility that you're part of the problem so what happens with a a letter like that do you get a do you get a response like do you get
0: any commitment
2: there yeah sometimes like um we haven't had a response to that one um as of yet um but for us it's very much not only looking for a response, but also putting it on the table that this is something we will hold you to account for throughout the next four or five years. This is not Mm -hmm. something that we have just let go under the radar. We named four or five policy points within it, so we're making it very clear to them that these issues are priorities for us. So as you go ahead and form your government, we'd obviously like you to consider these facts, but we're also letting you know that this is something that is not going to just uh, be sidelined as soon as your government is formed, you know, that these are issues we care about and we'll continue to, to advocate and fight for over the next um, government. Do you, think,
1: do, you, do you think when you've got as high profile politicians as Trump and Boris Johnson, who have both said fairly racist things in the past, those does that compound the issues like they're they're leading massive countries like in terms of their influence in the world like and some of the things Johnson said in the past <clears throat> previously you'd, you'd kind of go it's Boris the to buffoon kind of thing but like he's the <laughs> prime minister you know what I mean how is yeah. he and yeah. you know like I don't know I just find it a very weird situation that it's almost being normalized that world leaders can say some of the things that are being said and people just shrug their shoulders and get on with it you know
2: yeah i think um it it does compound it um it also um i wish we weren't in this situation where they didn't think those things but i also think people have risen up massively so because those two are so outwardly obvious in their Mm. racism because Sometimes it's the private racism, the much more intelligent racism that's operating behind the scenes, that's insidious, that we can't see, that keep people out. Um, That's that's really hard to identify. But because those two are so obvious in their racism, it allows us to have something to stand up to and fight back against and to raise awareness of. uh, But unfortunately, it also creates the other thing, which is it creates violence and it creates division. And I, I, I don't understand why anybody would want to be a political leader and sow division. You know, your sole purpose of being the leader of a country, even though you know there's varying views within that country, should be to unify as many people as possible and to be able to help all communities within that flourish. So I think, unfortunately, we have leaders in the UK and in in America that quite clearly show that they are only in the positions that they are for their own narcissistic reasons and to fulfill their own agenda. And really, they don't care about the country as a whole, because if they did, they would never, ever be speaking in the way that they speak.
0: Absolutely. Lynn, you um, released your book there two years ago, People Like Me. How was that process of writing it? And did you enjoy it?
2: I did, uh, I really enjoyed it, it was, it it allowed me to go back over a lot of things I experienced in my life in a completely different way, so being able to sit down, write it, I have kind of, a lot of it felt like it was all just sitting in my head and I wrote it really, really fast and I think that came from the fact that I do on a daily basis, I have this little narrator in my head, that, like I kind of talk to myself, you know, so (laughs) when I'm trying to make sense of a situation or trying to understand something, I talk in my own head all day um about the things that i think or the things that someone said so i think at some level the book was written in my head and i just had to put a format so it allowed me get get it from my head and onto a page but the the best thing about writing the book was reminded me who i am and where i'm from not that i ever forgot but i realized at the end of writing that book that my biggest fear was that my own community reject would reject me I wasn't afraid in any shape or form that the new spaces that I found myself in would judge me. So then I realized, actually, I know, I know what matters to me and I know who matters to me. And it's the people within my own community. And it reminded me why I set out on this journey in the first place and that they're the people that I want with me. They're the people that I want to like me and support me and to care about what I'm doing. Um, And and that was nice to to reassert that side of myself that that's that's why I'm doing this because I think sometimes like I worry, you know, about my own motives or agenda or why am I doing this or why do I care so much about that? Or are you only pretending to care about I know it's like this just this narrative in your head that tries to convince yourself you're doing things for different reasons and you're portraying to the world. You know, I don't know if everyone else has them internal struggles, but I, 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 I do. um. So writing the book allowed me to kind of realise that that's, that's not the case. I do it because I love my community and I very much care about my community and I want to be able to find ways to um, not n- not struggle in the way that, that we have and sometimes that seems like a really big uphill struggle. But then on any given week I could receive any amount of texts, letters, mails, about different decisions that people have made in their lives because of something I've said or something I've done. Um, And then also the different policies and amendments I've brought into legislation. Um, The amount of communication I have of people who have benefited from the stuff that I've done. And I have to keep reminding myself that, you know, if I create the space for there to be more diversity within politics, well, then the amount of people that are impacted will grow, you know. So if I can impact that amount of people, if there is much more diversity than just me in there, well then that just, you know, that just multiplies and I think that as a society we can we can get to that point. Does the,
1: brilliant. Does the, does the That's label, brilliant. Does the label of role model sit uneasy easier? does it sit well with you?
2: No, I don't like that word. I don't like that word. It comes with, it comes with responsibility because at the end of the day, you know, you don't want people to see it as a role model because at some point you're going to let someone down and at some point mm-hmm point someone's going to be hurt by something that you've done or, you, or you've said you know and I just want people to see me as you know as, as a human as a person who's who's trying to do good and doesn't always get that right might not always say or do the right thing but um, my actions each day keep moving towards doing the good listening to people trying to do better trying to take on board what uh, uh, people's point of view all of that so I just want I think when we create role models, we create a stick by which we beat other people over on for not reaching those same things that we see as role model criteria, you know. So for me to be a role model to my community could often be used by the establishment to kind of go, well, she's achieved, why can't you, you know, as if somehow, uh, you know, rather than me being an anomaly that actually somehow everybody else is is has failed or something? I have to look up to me to be a role model, you know. So yeah, I don't, I don't particularly, uh, I don't particularly like the word. Um, yeah, I think, I think a more comes with a personal fear of letting people down. You don't want to be anyone's role model because you also don't want them to be hurt. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, when you were saying you were writing it there, and there was a sense of letting your community down, and and I, I gather from that comment that it's your local community, but at the same time, you. I'm not in your local community, but everything you say, I love. And I mean, it's like, is it? Do you think? Do you think it's fair to say it's the working class community that look up to you? And I know I don't mean to put pressure on you because I know what you just said about being a role model. But I mean, the working class community, like, I, I don't know what other word to use other than role model. But like, someone yeah. to look up. No, with.
2: I think you are someone I to look
0: up to in the working I hope class
2: they- community. I hope, because um, so when I say my community, I primarily obviously me and my immediate community, but then that same community that exists all over the country, you know, that have them same experiences as those. I do have those in 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 my frame when when that's what I'm saying and thinking. But no, I want people to look at me and see themselves reflected back at them in the decision making of the country. I just want I want I want to see it. I want people to have a mutual recognition. I want to feel a mu- mutual recognition between me and the people that I work for and with. And I want um, there to be mutual respect. And I want that to be a relationship of equal mutual respect, you know, because everything I do, I do because of them and because of the learnings and experiences that they have shared with me their entire lives. So, um I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I am without their input and without their support. So I'd rather see it less as a looking up to, but more of a reflection of each other in, in, in the things that we do and the things that we say, if that makes sense.
0: Very good. The, done, is, is,
2: is, is, is anything
0: happening with the book
2: in terms of a screenplay? No, I've refused. I've refused to. Uh, I've been offered to, to sign the rights away a few times, but it's not, I'm not doing it. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, I, well, I, I, I just think unless I unless I had full say over what something looks like on screen, I I, I definitely don't want uh I, I don't want my community or the people that I love being stereotyped in the way that that film often can. So uh, I have refused to. I wrote a few screen. I wrote. I'm in the middle of writing a few screenplays myself. Um, that are definitely spin-offs from different parts of my life. Um, f- kind of fiction, semi-fiction but not so much, but we'll call it fiction, uh, you know. Um, so I hope at some stage I can write something and work with people that will be on screen, that will be cast fully by working class people, that the background, people in our working class, and that it's not stereotyped in any shape or form, and is a true reflection of working class culture and life without the stereotypes. So for me to, to, to give my screenplay away, um, I don't think the writing of it would be the issue. I think it would come to director and casting and that kind of stuff. So I'm not I'm not willing I'm not willing to do that.
1: What is is it an aspiration for you to to work with Jordan on one of these if if, if it comes to fruition? Yeah, I'd
2: I'd, I'd love to, but um, I don't think she'd love to. So <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, I think Jordan is Jordan is such an amazing talent artist uh, yeah. and and. Um, but she's very much her, her own uh, woman. So I think it's good for both of us to be able to do our own thing and be recognised in our own rights. And it can be a bit of a pain having a mad that's so vocal everywhere. Not that they, they say that, but like if I'm, you know, we, we, we need to create our own spaces as well, you know. So I think she's, she's, she's been acting and doing well in the public long before I was a politician. You know, so she's carving out that space for her. So, I mean, if I did ever write something and 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 she want and she was willing to be cast in it, that would be amazing. But I don't think I would have that expectation of her because I th- I, I think um she's shining her own light, you know, and and I think sh- I I would like to see her continue to do that, just like with Jay Lynn carving out, which j- Jalen wants to be a midwife and you know has no interest in, in in the public arena or you know, so. I just want them to find their own ways. I think I get that from my dad. My dad, I always say, my dad was a Leeds supporter, and he never forced us to 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 support Leeds. He was um, a big football a big football fan. Uh, he was a referee and um, played for Pats and Bray Wanderers and Sligo Rovers and you know. But he never ever ever um for tried to force any of us to support Leeds. I ended up supporting Man United, and my brother ended up supporting Liverpool, and he embraced. He embraced that, uh, so uh, I try and take that, that same that same that's method of parenting.
1: She's talking talk, talk about cultural diversity, what? <laughs>
2: <Yeah.
1: laughs>
2: that's very weird. Um, Liam, come yeah. here. Thanks so much for your time.
1: You're yeah. very welcome. It was lovely to chat you.
2: I got new Samsung AirPods, so I've been checking them out. I've been trying them out for the first time on <laughs> to you, so I feel all uh, I feel all young and and hip. My daughter had and to tell them. me how to set them up. <laughs> yeah, they, they,
1: they, they look they look trendy anyway. I'll give you that much. I'm still yeah. using this, like an ancient <laughs> headset. Look. Um, then just just real quick, if people want to follow you or, or hear more from you on social media and whatnot, where can they get you?
2: Um, so on my Twitter, which I think is Sen Lin Ruan or if you just type in Lyn Ruan it can be found there. Um, I've I've disabled my Facebook at the minute. Uh Just yeah, because. Show. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, yeah. probably the longest ever I've stayed off Facebook. My man's not too happy though because she can't ask for lives on Candy Crush, you know, through me Facebook. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Um, but as Merle said, Lynn, th- thanks for joining us. Uh, really appreciate our time. And whenever things kick back off in uh, Lanza House, all the best for what comes ahead. Thank you very much. She probably won't be comfortable with me saying this, but she's a fucking powerhouse. Oh, I was going to say powerhouse, you little uh, She is, though, like, she's just... She yeah, I think... I love what she was saying about, like, the whole... She does want people looking up to her. She wants people kind of seeing, like, a reflection more so, you know what I mean? And I think yeah. if uh, if more people who are public representatives held that opinion, the world would be better for it. I think so. I think you're right. Like,
0: like because we all think... And probably rightfully so that they get into it for the wrong reasons, um, and they don't give us any reason to believe that they're in it for the right reasons. But if they had that attitude, then maybe the public would 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 kind of be more um, identifiable to, to politicians. Do you know. I so, so I think I think you're spot on there. Yeah, and and um, I don't even like. I think it's a it's a great explanation as to what she. What she was saying, you know, as opposed to calling it modesty, yeah,
1: it's, yeah, it's
0: not, it's not modesty as such, but there is a, there is a hint of modesty there, but the actual action of, of the statement is like, you know, come with me, or you know, she, she, she seems cares, she cares, she's compassion, she's yeah. empathetic, she has all the credentials that you want in a, in she, an actual leader,
1: to be honest. She with. holds herself to account.
0: Yes, absolutely, she holds to account. absolutely. And
1: I think she, uh, genuinely, I think, Lynn Rowan is one of the people who you point to when people say the Senate is, you know, it's ridiculous and it shouldn't be there and that kind of thing. Senator Lynn Rowan is one of the people that you hold up as a kind of, if we didn't have the Senate, potentially this voice will be one that we don't get. And this voice is so fucking important in our society at the moment. Um, I think you're right. So, I think that's very yeah. fair
0: to say. And it's a pity we didn't get time, but I did actually want to ask her: would she would she be become a TD down the road?
1: Mm, yeah, well maybe one day we'll get her back on, and and hopefully yeah. she'll, she'll she'll have time for us uh, again in the future. But yeah. an absolute powerhouse, lads. Like, uh, and, and as as Mero mentioned on it, and as as we briefly touched on, I would like to spend more time in it. But um, her, her book is is, is amazing. Her story is incredible. Like, and yeah. if uh, if you get a chance, pick it up and. Uh, give it a read.
0: And And look look out, look out, I've been to a number of Lynn's talks over the years and so like when when we go back to some sort of sense of normality, do keep, I'm talking to the listeners here, do kind of look out for Lynn appearing anywhere for talks, you know, Um, because she is an invaluable person to listen to and you learn from her all the time.
1: Absolutely, man, absolutely. Uh, But yeah, that was WTS 206 live from Lockdown ish. Are we still in lockdown? Are we, it's kinda it's lifted, but it's, it's, it's not lifted. Li- it's kinda lifted
0: a bit, isn't it? It's kinda like
1: Like you can go anywhere within your county or twenty kilometers.
0: Yeah. <laughs> How does that make
1: sense? I live five mountain.
0: minutes away from Wicklow. Can I go to Wicklow?
1: Yeah, I'm the same. I live five minutes away from Offley. I've no intentions of ever going to Offley. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of the few places I can travel to, so I may be forced. <laughs>
0: Uh, actually if any listeners out there um, our family was let down uh, by a golden for a golden retriever puppy we were hoping to get a golden retriever puppy by the end of the month but the litter of 11 um, not all of them survived and we were um, not on the list for the remaining ones so if anybody knows where I would get legitimately uh, from a golden retriever breeder a golden retriever puppy a little boy I would be eternally grateful, and so would
1: my fam. So you hair to hair force, Graham seeks blonde with good legs. <laughs> yes, yeah, and good <laughs> hips. Golden <laughs> retrievers have to have good hips. They do, they do. And, and lads, lads, we we know, we know. Adopt, don't shop, and all that kind of thing. Look, we know. All right, look, it's Grand. Don't be coming at people with that shit. Like it's all good. I, I tried
0: to adopt as well, but they we look. We're seeking a a gold retriever puppy, um, and. They, they don't have any the the adult yeah.
1: places yeah. don't have any at the moment so and and the other side that's of it is, that their breed of choice it is and the other side of it is it'll be going to a wonderful home regardless and if it goes to a good home isn't that better than it going to a shit home or whatever Absolutely. the case may be so Absolutely. there you go um, right, I, I'm excited for I, I'm excited for this because Mark Merrigan has been promising you a dog since you were about three years of age Yes, yeah, so. very fair to say.
0: And then my mom during during the lockdown, my mom just said on a Saturday night, "I want to get a golden retriever." And yes, we're like,
1: go on, Janser. Yes, I was
0: I was I was half human and half I was half human because I've been asking for one since I was three years of age. Yeah. And then I was like in just so much happiness that this is actually happening. And then the realization that I'm 35 and living at home. <laughs>
1: Jennifer American, the voice of reason in that house. I'm glad. To, I'm, I'm glad you going to have a 40 friend soon. I look forward to meeting him or her. Yeah, and
0: it's a it's a it's a tricky process as well. It's not like you can just go into a pet shop and get a puppy.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it. Um, but nonetheless, exciting times ahead. Um, Graham, if if people want to listen to the 205 episodes that preceded this episode.
0: They can go on to WTSpod.com or they can search on any podcast provider by just putting in WTSpod. Any, ser- any podcast providers such as Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Podcast Republic, any of these um, providers and we're there. I'm at Merigamania on Twitter. He's at Danjo Murray at Twitter. We're at, at WTSpod on Twitter and we're back.
1: We are. And I would just like to clarify before anybody comes at us, we were offered the Spotify exclusive deal before Joe Rogan, but we turned it down because we're not in it for the money. Yeah, because we're socialists. Exactly. Graham's a socialist. I, <laughs> I, 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 tag, I tag along. <laughs> redistribute. Re- redistribu- distribu- distribu-
0: All right, I'll start that again. Oh, redistribute. Yeah. Oh, God, forget it. Ah, are you trying to say redistribute the wealth? yes that's exactly what I was trying to say yeah, why yeah, didn't they come out I we
1: won't just, be doing
0: that re, 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 you could do, yeah. you could do a, a rap there on tiktok or something do a
1: little, do a little remix yeah if if, uh, if you, you decide to do that with your podcast millions you go ahead and do that but I will have a solid gold jacuzzi <laughs> and be and be surrounded by huskies that's that's what you don't want. with my millions deadly right Dan until <laughs> anyway, anyway. next time clear eyes full hearts can't lose Oh, sweet!